Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and we're really glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them all here this morning. As we light the chalice, may our souls become its hearth. We join our hearts to the one great flame of bright compassion, beloved community, and fervent justice. May our sparks become a wildfire in the world, lighting the way for all. Good morning. Our call to worship is an excerpt from the poem Transcendental Etude by Adrian Rich, poet, essayist, and feminist, the daughter of Jewish and Southern Presbyterian parents. Rich was hailed by the New York Times as, quote, a poet of towering reputation and towering rage who brought the oppression of women and lesbians to the forefront of poetic discourse. No one ever told us we had to study our lives make of our lives a study, as if learning natural history or music, that we should begin with the simple exercises first and slowly go on trying the hard ones, practicing till strength and accuracy become one with the daring to leap into transcendence. And in fact, we can't live like that. We take on everything at once before we've even begun to read or mark time, we're forced to begin in the midst of the hardest movement, the one already sounding as we are born. Sometimes there's ample evidence that things are happening in a life or with an organization, and sometimes it feels like maybe you don't know what's happening, you don't know where you're going. This congregation wrote a mission statement that helps us see where we're going, and we like to say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. And one thing we can do to build the beloved community is to think about um, how our lives, how we have different experiences in our lives, depending on the kind of what we call now privileges we have. You have a different experience if you uh, have able-bodied privilege, where somebody goes, oh, it's within walking distance, and you know that you could probably walk it. Um, Or you know, yeah, you say it's walking distance, but uh, hmm. anyway, so those of us with white skin privilege sometimes have the option of really just staying in white spaces our whole lives. And we very seldom find ourselves in a place where we are the only one of our particular race in a group. Can I get an amen? Is that true in the white, yeah, in the white identified folks here? Yeah, and so, but people of color or people of the global majority, as we call them, um, those among us with um, non-white skin privilege find themselves often, like daily, every day, all the time, in white spaces. So how do we 
feel belonging. So if you picture yourself in an all non-white space, what could somebody do that would make you feel like you belonged? If you're a person of the global majority and you find yourself in an all-white space, what could somebody do there that would make you feel like you belonged? Belonging is a complicated thing. Kaya and I went to a Hindu temple for a ritual that she needed to attend for one of her seminary classes, and we were wandering around, and it was confusing, and there was construction, and we were lost, and finally we looked through a window, and there was this man who saw us, and he went like this. And that was lovely, and we felt welcomed. Um, so let's think about what, what makes us feel welcomed in a space where we might not know if we belonged. And how can we do that for someone else? Our meditation reading today is by Audre Lorde from the essay, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. Caribbean-American poet, essayist, feminist, lesbian icon, and anti-war civil rights and human rights activist, Lord confronts her own mortality shortly after her doctor discovered a tumor that did eventually turn out to be benign. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence. Now's the time in our service when we join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we might speak to God or listen to God as we understand God or just listen to our inner wisdom or watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. It is in this silent place that we can find clarity, that we can feel ourselves held in the arms of love, that we can root ourselves in the great heart of compassion. Let us enter into silence together, understanding that in this congregation, tiny noises from babies and sounds of life count as part of the silence. There's a river flowing in my soul. There's a river flowing in my soul. And it's telling me that I'm somebody. There's a river flowing in my soul. There's a river inside us. And... Sometimes it flows through just in a, in a flood, and sometimes it slows to a trickle, and sometimes it gets caught in an eddy, and sometimes it wanders off and forgets its way out and becomes kind of swampy, and it's important to find a way for it to come out again. And so I'm, I want to talk to you today about a spiritual practice uh, out of the silence, writing your life, writing your life. And so I'm not going to talk about journaling every day. Um, I'm going to talk about sometimes you, you've just got to get your life. You know, your life just feels kind of like it's slipping through your fingers or 
or you don't know yourself, or you know yourself so well you're kind of bored, or you might have something that you've been keeping silent about. And the spiritual practice of writing your life can be calming and soothing, and it can also be fierce and educational. No one told us we should make up our lives a study, says Adrian Rich. In Unitarian Universalism, we don't have one scripture that we draw from every single day or every single week. We can find um, beauty and revelation and wisdom in the scriptures of any religion or in science or art or poetry or dance or nature. We find revelation of truth and inspiration in a number of different places. And in fact, on the um, UUA, which is the Unitarian Universalist Association website, UUA.org, you have a gold mine of information about Unitarian Universalism. And one of the informations that you'll need, which you might not have if you're new to Unitarian Universalism, is that we have six sources that we draw from. And here's what the website says. Unitarian Universalist congregations affirm and promote seven principles, which we hold as strong values and moral guides, and we live out these principles within a living tradition of wisdom and spirituality drawn from sources as diverse as science, poetry, and then they name all the things I just named. The first one is direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. The second one is words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. And you can go on the website yourself and read the other four. But I want to talk about this this words and deeds of prophetic people because... I want us to think about our own selves as prophetic people. I want us to think of our own lives as something we could study for wisdom and for revelation, more than just like, don't be a cautionary tale. <laughs> so I think we can study our own lives if we turn our attention to them in, the, in, the, in a good way, in the right way. On the simplest level, you can just write about your day. And number one, do not write every day and do not make any resolutions because that's just a way to fail. Just tell yourself, and if you're a Unitarian Universalist or uh, someone who um, is like me, you're oppositional defiant. Um, It's a disorder in the DSM-5. The oppositional defiant person who tells themselves they're going to write every day is just dumb. You have to say, I might write... From time to time. And then it doesn't wake up that mule inside you. So just tell yourself, you might write from time to time, if you feel like it, whatever. So you can write your day. And then you'll notice that you have the things that happen to you, and then you have your stories about what happened to you. And once you notice that you're telling stories about what happened to you, you can maybe decide 
that that's not the only story that could be told about what happened to you. For example, I had a friend a long time ago, far away, who had a housefly infestation. And she had the thought, someone has put a curse on me. That was the story she was telling herself about it until she did a little further research and realized she just needed to keep the cat food bowls cleaned out. Somewhat different. Make of your life a study. So you study your life, you write down your day, or you write down every time you're confused about something, you're trying to figure out something, mad about something, sad about something. And you might have a pattern recognition moment where you go, you know what, I'm writing about money all the time. I'm just money scared all the time. Or I write about how much I hate my job all the time. Or I really need to not talk to my brother anymore because it makes me feel bad. So you might have a pattern recognition that helps you improve your life a little bit or see at least what's happening. And if you have the thought, why does this keep happening to me? That is a really strong signal that there's a pattern which you've already noticed, and you may want to just write a little bit to see if there's something in there that maybe is your responsibility. Maybe something, little. (laughs) When I was in my 20s, I was reading the journal of this uh, young woman in her 20s from the 1800s, and she was running a household up in Massachusetts somewhere. She was... um, She was a boring person, and she had her social events, and she ordered her servants around, and she, um, you know, kept the household going, and every single time she wrote, she would say, I must improve the shining hour, and I'm like, you know, this is the 1800s. How many ways to waste time are there, really? I was having a failure of imagination. Because none of my time-wasting ways were available to her. So I couldn't really relate. But don't you think she would have noticed that every single entry for like 10 years, she was trying to improve the shining hour? Wouldn't you think, maybe I'm stuck. (laughs) And I started reading back over my journals, which I had kept sporadically, not every day, for a long time. And I... (laughs) I started reading all my lists of resolutions, and my resolutions were always lose weight, grow out my fingernails, and get a tan. (laughs) And I thought, how much energy would be released in my life if I quit worrying about all three of those things? And so I quit worrying about those things. And uh, with the extra energy, I I had two children and wrote six books and, you know. (laughs) So study your life. Sometimes you just want to make lists. I mean, we all know how to make a list. Really, the main thing I want you not to worry about is writing it well. Nobody cares about that. So just the only reason you write it is to get it out from your head. So it's on a screen or on a page, and so you can have a relationship with it that's different from the relationship you have with it when it's still in your head. It just gives you a different perspective. And so um, my roommate and I in seminary had 
uh, we were in a dorm that was going to be gutted that summer and revamped. And so we started writing on the walls because we could and nobody would care. And, um, but we had lists that we didn't want anybody to see. So there was a great big quilt hanging on the wall, and we went behind the quilt to write our secret lists. And we wrote what I feel guilty about, what I'm afraid of, what I want, what I need, people I love, people that make me feel bad, things I want to be, what do I want to be famous for. Anyway, just lists. And I call that spiritual autobiography because it helps you see the shape of your spirit. What is your spirit longing for? What is your spirit cringing from? What is the style of your spirit? Are you a curious spirit? Are you a defensive spirit? Can you move from defensive to curious? Is that a possibility? I don't know. So that's why I call that spiritual autobiography. Just make lists. And if you want to go deeper... You can ask yourself questions. And sometimes the sources, the UU sources are a good source of questions. Like you can say, wisdom from the great world religions. Well, what are some wisdoms that I've picked up from other people's scriptures that matter to me? What are some gems of wisdom? Write those down. The words and deeds of prophetic people. Who do I admire? Who are some people I admire and what kinds of actions did they take? And what am I noticing about them? I'll give you a hint. You'll notice that Nobody's perfectly wonderful, including present company. And the line between good and, I won't say bad, but I'll say maybe stupid, runs through the center of everybody. We all, uh, we all have both, and our heroes have both. Our sheroes have both. We shouldn't expect anyone to be just 100% amazing. So we learn from people's lives and we write down what we learned. And one of the questions that you might want to start with is, what is an early spiritual experience that I remember? And I would write about going to the Philadelphia Art Museum. I was about 15. I took the train into town and went to the art museum. And they had this, they still have it, I heard. They had this room where someone had uh, pillaged a Hindu temple and brought it back from its home brought it from its home to Philadelphia and set it up in the art museum in a whole room of its own. And I was in there and these beautiful pillars were just rising in rows on either side of me and my footsteps were echoing on the flagstone floor and I heard in my mind, not in my ear, I heard this note that sounded like, you know, the lowest note of an organ. It was just going, like that. And I felt it fill me up, and it made me feel um, whole. <laughs> I told my dad about it later, and he said it was demonic. But um, <laughs> welcome to my childhood. <laughs> but anyway, um, I knew it wasn't. And the next room I went into was a reconstructed Zen tea garden which had a little, um, a little garden with sand and patterns and rocks, and it had bamboo growing, and it had a, one of those water features that the water comes out of a bamboo 
pipe and falls onto a stone and into a pond and a little pond because it's in the room in a museum. But it was lovely. There was a, a tea house with white paper walls and a gray floor, as I recall, and a quiet, quiet table with a teapot. I remember the teapot as being cobalt blue. I don't know if I'm remembering it right. But I was all alone in that room for a good while, and I just, after the note had filled me up and walking into this Zen tea garden, I just was wide open, and I felt that this is what I wanted. And so I went home to my 15-year-old room, uh, which this will date me, but there was an olive shag carpet on the floor. And I, um, I took the carpet away, and I took all my little tchotchkes off the shelves, the little, the little unicorns and fairies and horses and Buddhas and everything I had. I packed them all into boxes, I think, um, and wiped off the shelves and just left them bare. And I was just a minimalist from then on. And I, I realized that space spoke to me more than things, that I valued space. And I knew how spirit feeling that could be. So that is something that I would write about in my journal if I were talking about early spiritual experiences. And sometimes those among us who identify as white are on this project of trying to see the way things are uh, in a clearer way. The way things are is just another word for white supremacy culture. So, uh, but it's easier for my ear to say the way things are because white supremacy culture is truer and harder to swallow. So I, I want to, um, you know how you ask the fish, how's the water today? And the fish goes, what water? <laughs> that's, that's the way I have been with the culture. Um, and... I want to not be that way. I'm curious. I don't feel guilty about it because really I didn't do it. It was, I was just trained and raised that way. I want to feel curious about it. How can I see things more clearly? I like to get an A plus in things. I know a lot of y'all are like that. I want to get an A plus in seeing the culture clearly. So, and I remember, like, I want to write the question, when did I first realize I was white and that that was a thing? And I remember sometimes of my mother telling me things that would be termed now, uh, she was teaching me to be white. I'm not going to repeat that because I think it might be harmful or hurtful to people of color or people of the global majority. I don't want to tell you the things she told me about how to be white. And so, but it's a thing. And if you're curious about white culture just as a, as a, a curiosity, there's a website called Stuff White People Like. I just remember unpaid internships were on there. I, was, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is true. So, anyway. That's the kind of thing I might write about if I were being curious about how to get an A-plus and seeing things the way they are. And... Um, I like the belonging question that we talked about right after the affirmation of our mission. I might write about, when have I really felt like I belonged somewhere? And what made me feel that way? 
And was there someone who did something that made me feel like it belonged? What could somebody have done to help me? Or have I never, ever felt like I belonged, which is also information for you. And inside most of us is a really big sadness. And inside most of us is a really big rage. So if you have a big sadness or a big rage inside, you're not the only one. Although, (laughs) when I would say something like this in my congregation in um, South Carolina, there was this one woman who was just like really more spiritual than anybody else. And if I said something about we all have a rage, she would go, "Um, I don't. (laughs) And everybody else would be thinking, well, mine just got worse. And a lot of people, they're worried that if they started writing about their anger or their sorrow, that it would just, if you open the door, it'll just overwhelm your whole life and be so big you won't ever get out of it. But that's not what happens. You just write about it and then you save it in a file with a name that's so boring that no one would ever look in there. Like Budget 2013. Audrey Lourdes' daughter said this, You're never really a whole person if you remain silent, because there's always that one little piece inside you that wants to be spoken out. And if you keep ignoring it, it gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter. And if you don't speak it out, one day it will just up and punch you in the mouth from the inside. And I think most of us have that experience of something just coming up and then it comes out of our mouth and we're like, oh no, I can't believe that came out. Anybody who's been married or partnered for any length of time has had that experience. Anyone who has raised children or had parents has had that experience where you just think, this must be said. This thing inside me must be said. And I'm going to say it right now. And you have that righteous feeling that rises up in you, which should give you a red flag because (laughs) that kind of righteous feeling is the harbinger of bad behavior. (laughs) So, when you have something that must be said, it might be wise to just go, excuse me for a minute, and go shut yourself in the bedroom or wherever and write it out. Uh, And then you can look at it and go, oh, my God, that sounds just really whiny slash ridiculous slash cruel slash whatever. Or that sounds like something that needs to be said. And then you can go say it or just hand them the writing. (laughs) And here is a phrase I'm going to give you that is so important and helpful if you're writing your life so that you can really get to the truth. And the phrase is, what I really mean to say is, so I would write, for example, because I'm sick and sad about the children in detention, as are all of you, I know. I have it sloshing around in here all the time. So I write, I'm sick and sad about the children in detention. What I really mean to say is, 
I'm sick and sad that they don't have a place to sleep that's not a concrete floor, or they don't have toothpaste. I'm sick and sad that they are crying for their parents, and their parents could be easily found. And I'm sick and sad. And what I really mean to say is, I see my own children and grandchildren when I look at them. And what I really mean to say is, I want to fix this. And what I really mean to say is, I am boring my senators and Congress people uh, by calling them about this. And what I really mean to say is, I don't know what else to do. And what I really mean to say is, I don't know what to do. And what I really mean to say is, I feel helpless. And what I really mean to say is, I hate that feeling. And what I really mean to say is, I'm going to vote, but that doesn't feel like soon enough. And what I really mean to say is, I'm sick and sad. So, it doesn't really heal that up because that shouldn't be healed up. That is a horror that should cause distress. Nobody in this world can have enough therapy so they can watch that on TV and be okay. You know what I mean? That is a terrible thing that is happening. And, and yet, so many of us just feel helpless. Even people who are elected representatives feel helpless and... Uh, what I really mean to say is, I want you all to have this tool if you want to use it occasionally. If you love where you are in your life, that's great. If you know everything that you need to know in this world, you're wrong. This spiritual practice is a good way to attain cognitive humility, which means there's a lot I don't know. And I'm curious to find out about a lot of it. Um, really, trigonometry, I'm not curious about. My father tried from the time I was two to teach it to me, and I learned it once, and then I forgot it because I just don't care. But... Looking at the culture and seeing it clearly, I care about that. I'm curious about that. I want to I wanna get an A-plus on that. I wonder what that would look like. So if you want to be more uh, spiritual, which the Middle Eastern Christian scriptures say means more kind, joyful, loving, um, self-controlled, and gentle, uh, that's what they say it means. I, we might have a different vision of what... Spiritual growth might mean, what are the symptoms of spiritual growth? We might say, um, courageous, clear, hungry for the liberation of others, empathic, resilient for difficult conversation. I don't, I'm open to a conversation about what you think spiritual growth might mean for you. And so blessings on your learning and blessings on your uh, cognitive humility and blessings on your curiosity. Let us say the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. There's a river flowing in my heart. There's a river 
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.